Fierce Women Writing is a partner of We Need Diverse Books, a nonprofit that advocates for diversity in children's and young adult publishing at every level. They have many programs that support this mission, including grants, mentorships, and retreats for writers, classroom book giveaways, an app for diverse book recommendations, and others. Learn how you can help them put more books featuring diverse characters into the hands of all children at weneeddiversebooks.org. Welcome to Fierce Women Writing, where female voices are elevated, creativity is ignited, and writers are inspired. Hey there, Fierce Writers. Today's guest is Cassandra Lane. Cassandra Lane is the author of We Are Bridges, winner of the Louise Merriweather First Book Prize, and editor-in-chief of LA Parent Magazine. She's worked as a newspaper journalist, high school English and journalism teacher, senior writer for an early education nonprofit, college essays advisor for a nonprofit serving underrepresented students, and community relations manager for the LA Dodgers. Originally from Louisiana, she lives with her family in Los Angeles. Here's Cassandra Lane reading from We Are Bridges. Before I started kindergarten, Before I learned to spell my name correctly, my father taught me how to draw. He started me off tracing comic strip characters until I could create, freehand, Snoopy's nose, just so. It wasn't fun. It was meticulous. Draw a line, erase it, start over. My neck and fingers would ache. Afraid to complain, I began to savor the softness of my father's breath behind my ear, and the warmth of his large fingers closing over my tiny ones. After Mama left him, I was often afflicted with constipation, nausea, and dizziness. I let empty spaces embrace me. Mama would find me tucked away in some corner, playing alone or staring into what to her was emptiness. One afternoon, she found me small and unconscious and nude, in the blue-gray light of the bathroom, flat on my back in the tub. Lord, my child, she yelled. Grandmama came running, wrapped me in one of the tattered bath towels, and anointed me with blessed virgin olive oil, the smell of which turned my stomach upside down. She prayed over my limp body and then got me to stand and raise my arms, to the rain-stained ceiling, thanking God for his mercy. We couldn't get you to eat anything but greens, Mama told me years later. The greens, I can taste now. I taste them the way Grandmama used to cook them before Papa's diabetes and her high blood pressure set in. They would be full of salt and pepper, the flavor of salted pork embedded in their wilted green-black leaves. Turnips were my favorite greens. They absorbed salt more fully. Mama got used to finding me in the tub, and if no greens had been cooked, she would ask Grandmama to put on a pot so that I could get something in my stomach. That girl had one of her heat spells again, she'd announce and pull me up. She didn't take me to a doctor until boils rose on the back of my neck, filled with pus and blood. She and Grandmama prayed over me first and wondered if the abscesses had anything to do with the matches Grandmama had caught me eating a few weeks before. As if they were candy, 
I had sucked the red heads of the matches until the grains melted into my tongue. When Grandmama saw me, I had eaten dozens of the little heads and placed the pale wooden sticks back into the fat box that sat on top of the den's heater. I don't know what made me put the first match tip into my mouth, whether I had sensed the salty taste would be there. The acrid, chemical taste of the matches was unpleasant and irritating, but a sacrifice I was willing to pay for the salt. Every now and then, I crave the taste of matches. The saltiness, the pungency, the smell of sulfur hangs between the roof of my mouth and nasal cavity, even now. The inbred desire for salt never left me. Give me salt and heat, and I am sustained. I was drawn to the matches and to the fire leaping behind the bricks in our heaters. These were not pyromaniacal desires. I wanted only to draw them both into my body, the salt and the heat, to warm me, to keep me alive. I've heard of people who are love-starved becoming addicted to sugar. I was separated from my father, whose love I didn't feel even when we were with him, but my need for salt may have been a crying out for him, as he was in all his spiciness and abrasiveness. Wow, thank you so much for reading for us today, Cassandra. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) Thank you. Cassandra, what are the ideal conditions for you to write? A dark room, early, early in the morning. Everyone in the house still asleep. And even in the neighborhood, (laughs) I love the idea of imagining myself as the only soul kind of awake in that moment. It's where everything is quiet, um, except, you know, some insect sounds outside. I love candles, incense. I like those first because that helps me just settle into, just ground me into my room, my writing room. And the scents, I love the smell of amber um, and just low lighting and quiet. How do you nurture your creativity? By reading. I love reading poetry, of course, great fiction, great nonfiction. And then I love exploring my city. Uh, Years and years ago when I lived in New Orleans, a city that I absolutely love, I uh, learned about Julia Cameron's, you know, date, artist dates. Um, Mm -hmm. I did a course with a friend. And so I started taking myself out without friends, without mate, and just exploring the city, going to lunches on my own. And I really, really enjoyed it. It was something that I didn't, you know, I was in my mid-20s then. I didn't, I thought I might feel awkward. And I guess at the beginning it was a little bit awkward. Um, but I love that tradition of kind of going out and exploring the city. I take a lot of photographs. It's I can't, My cell phone is kind of like my, you know, quick journal because I can go back and look at those pictures. Um, I love going to plays, to musicals. Um, exploring with my family, nature, all of those things feed my creativity. What is your best writing tip? Well, definitely read. (laughs) Read, read, read. And then, you know, annotate as you're reading. When you read a sentence that you're just like, oh my gosh, you're ready to just drop the book on the floor because it's 
that astounding, pick it back up and underline and write about why it was so, why it stopped you in your tracks. Was it the musicality? Was it the honesty in what the writer wrote in that sentence or that paragraph? Um, So just intense, intimate reading is where it starts. That's where it started for me, like most of us as a kid. Um, And then the confidence to, to know that you have a right to write. You have a right to tell your story, no matter who you are. What about editing and revising tips? See, I love the editing process. I've been working, you know, as a journalist. I started when I was still in college. Um, I was the editor of the campus newspaper. I did my internship. I've just always worked with editors and, you know, writing and editing under deadline. You really don't have, there's really no place to personalize being edited um, in any way. And so it just became such a part of my makeup that when I started really working on my creative work, um, at first, kind of on the side after my newspaper job, you know, late at night, early in the morning. But once I found my first creative writing workshop, which was No More Writing um, Workshop in New Orleans, just amazing poets, um, many of whom, some of whom you know, Jericho Brown, Terrence Hayes, uh, started off there. It was so liberating to get that kind of workshop feedback mm-hmm. um, because it just ex- it expands your view hearing others, you know, read their poetry, revise their work. Um, it just, for me, is very freeing. And I, I was telling someone the other day that I revise in circles. So I will work on a piece probably way too long in some cases. Um, but it just, it, it helps to, for me to revise in circles and to read out loud. I record myself reading, you know, different passages out loud to see what's, what feels clunky. Um, and, and, it just makes the work better when you share it and you get an outside reader's input. What would you say is your biggest writing challenge right now? Time. Yeah. <laughs> time, time, time. Um, I'm in between, you know, this current book that is hasn't even hit the shelves yet. I just got my author copies on Friday, um, which was surreal. But that book has to, we have to go through the marketing, you know, process unfolding. So I'm super busy with that. And then I have a full-time job as an editor. I'm a mom, I'm a wife. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just really, really hard to find the time to, to write. That's my biggest challenge. I have another, what I hope is maybe another book idea that, that may, I know that there's something there because I feel like energetic when I think about it. It's percolating. I want to, I've jotted down a few passages here and there. I don't know where. So <laughs> I need to get more organized. <laughs> so those are my two, I would say time and just being organized because now that we're work, all working from home, most of us, my office is now, you know, my laptop and all the files for the magazine and for the book. And sometimes when an idea hits me, you know, that's a creative idea. I write it down somewhere and can't remember. So time and organization are my challenges. What do you do when you're trying to overcome a block? I like uh, walking, taking a walk, working out. I do right now, all of everything's, you know, virtual with my classes, but I love all of my teachers um, and I get to see them online. And there's just something about moving the body to me that frees up frustration that kind of just 
frees up my blockages. Um, and after a shower, I can come back to whatever I was working on. Um, I also love fun things. Like I have dolls I started collecting and I love their fashion. So things that are fun and that make me laugh and I'm not just creative, but it's not my main thing. Yeah. And so I just feel free to do that, that thing, whatever it is, whether it's food, um, you know, eating out, playing with fashion, those things are creative and exciting to me, but I, there's not this big burden um, on them. So it frees me to come back to my own work with a sense of just energy and excitement and freshness. Tell me about the relationship between your physical and mental health and your writing. Mm, that's a really good, that's very good and very important. Um, I think that's part of the reason why I make working out such a practice and have for, for a long time since um, undergrad, really, and started seeing my, I think I saw my first therapist when I was 25, even though I came from a family where that wasn't necessarily, you know, something that was smiled upon. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that there were things that I needed to work out, you know, just baggage, emotional baggage. And I knew that I couldn't do that on my own. I remember finding my first therapist, I think I was about 26. Um, and I was doing, you know, dealing with some microaggressions at work, racism. And I was looking specifically for a black uh, therapist. Um, and I remember her saying, wow, you were really resourceful. You're new in town. You found me. She didn't even take new clients that often. Um, and I think I talked to some people in my workshop and an attorney who knew her. And anyway, it was just very helpful. So I've always known that I wanted to go deeper and see what was causing, you know, my insecurities, anger, and you can't do that alone. Yes, I was, I'm a writer and I can explore through the writing, but when you're writing, you dredge up all of those heavy, you know, issues and you still need somewhere to put those unhealed parts. I don't necessarily believe that we're ever fully healed from certain traumas. I feel like it's an ongoing thing. Um, so I just think all of those things are important. Physical, um, some sort of physical outlet, whether that's yoga, Zumba, weights, um, mental health professionals, working with them, um, and then taking care of the body, you know, what you put into the body too. I love teas and herbal teas. What are your thoughts on writing as activism? Oh, writing definitely can be a form of activism. Activism is simply acting on that which you're passionate about, that which you believe in, speaking out against something that you believe is wrong. So going to the page, fighting against everything that tries to keep you from the page, sitting down and trying to tune into all of your powers of concentration to bring forth your emotional self, to write and revise, to craft, to research. That is an act. That is a form of activism. You're attempting to create something that will impact others, impact readers, and that may last indefinitely. 
we think about Martin Luther King's speeches, powerful, powerful works that first began with the written word. Claudia Rankin's Citizen, a game changer, forcing America to look at itself in the mirror with all the lights on. Nanama Dunkwa's Willow Weep for Me, a memoir that she wrote 20 years ago, bringing awareness to Black women's battle with depression by telling her own personal story. They say that the personal is political and the political is personal, and I definitely believe that. Caritha Mitchell's Living with Lynching, a collection of African-American lynching plays. I had no idea that that existed until a couple of years ago, and that impacted me in my own work, uh, the book We Are Bridges, which germinated from my obsession with the fact that my great-grandfather was lynched. So here I had these plays, some of which were written by Black women, to turn to thanks to the work of Caritha Mitchell. So yes, absolutely, writing is a form or can be a form of activism. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with publishing your work? Sure. So it started as a newspaper journalist, um, publishing you know, articles uh, covering everything from crime to education to youth issues. And then I started publishing a little bit in literary journals while I was in New Orleans, um, some local journals, some local newspapers, but a little bit more creative work outside of the journalism. And then uh, in 2001, I moved to California, enrolled in the MFA program at Antioch. While I was in that program, this pretty much the piece that I wrote, the main piece that I wrote became the seed for this book. I didn't know that then, that that's what it was going to turn out to be. That was almost 20 years ago now. Wow. But that piece, my, I remember my mentor, you know, I workshopped it. We worked on it. She loved it. And she was in the process of working with an editor in New York who was, um, who was putting together an anthology. And I think the deadline had passed, but she reached out to him and said, you have to read this piece. It fits with the theme of the anthology. He read it, loved it, and told his editors at Random House, we have one more essay coming. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I remember a friend saying, this is, don't think this is how it always happens in MFA programs. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I didn't come here with any expectations. I really, like it just happened. That's not, I wow. wasn't thinking publishing, but that's how that happened. Um, I think I wrote um, another piece shortly after that, that was published in an an independently uh, published anthology, which was great. And then uh, a shorter piece that's also a part of this um, this memoir was published in the Bellingham Review. So a few pieces were published while I was a student in the MFA program. And then after, I was just so worried about, you know, making money, getting a job, and I went right into teaching. <laughs> and I don't, I didn't publish for a few years because I wasn't writing and completing anything. Um, I didn't start publishing again, I don't think, until after I was a mom and kind of over those first early years of mothering mm -hmm. and started reaching out, sending stuff out again. You know, you get, of course, way, as you know, way more rejections than acceptances, but it was good to be back in the groove. And then I knew that I needed to reconnect to the literary community. Um, this, and I love Antioch because the 
community here is super strong, even though this is a huge place where you can sometimes feel disconnected. Mm-hmm. But that Antioch community, you know, especially through social media, we were able to stay in touch. There was one, there's one group that I give so much credit to women who submit because they were created specifically to encourage women and non-binary writers to submit their work, especially to, you know, higher tier journals as well. So just joining the group, joining the submission parties where we all, you know, get together and submit our work. And each time someone submits, they yell submit and there's a bit, there are bells and applause. So, and then you also, you know, it's a very, um, there's a, there's an online, it's a private group for, for this part of it, but there's a rejection brag. And so whenever you have a rejection there, you're encouraged to say, Hey, I was, I was rejected from the Paris review or wherever. And everybody kind of cheers you on just as they would cheer you on if you were accepted. And I just, I think it just takes, yeah, it's, (laughs) it takes the mystery um, out of it and it just tightens the community and helps you keep going. So that's so beautiful. Yeah. I just, I think it's important to just get in the rhythm of submitting. Yes. write, Complete, revise, polish, but get in the rhythm of sending things out. Mm. Mm -hmm. Who are one or two other women writers or creators we should be aware of right now? So I'm reading Rima Zaman, who is in an anthology with me that was published last year. In fact, it was published just as, uh, the world shut down mm. <laughs> in March theory. And, um, and the subtitle is women's lived experiences in the Trump era. And I loved Rima's essay in the anthology and we connected. She sent me her memoir. I've actually gifted it to a, a neighbor, a teenage, um, a young woman. Cause I think it's just so beautiful. It's called I am yours, a shared memoir. And yes, it's, it looks at, you know, her experience with sexual assault and rape, but it's really so empowering. It's, you know, it's self-help in the sense that she's talking to herself and to you, which is why she calls it a shared memoir. So I'm always interested in who is the we in the I, you know, yes, memoirs are first person, but each person has a nation of people. And I like that she's sort of addressing that head on and and including you as the reader. So you're reading it. It's in first person. It's in, I'm sorry, in present tense, which makes it so immediate and urgent, but it's also very, very poetic. Um, So you're going with her on this journey from childhood. So she, she does this beautiful, masterful um, use. She's able to talk in the, you know, the child five-year-old voice and then you see her becoming a young woman and then older. And she do- just does it so seamlessly. So I, I really love this book. And I also love that she's one of the writers who's taken it beyond this one project. Like she's, this book has caused so many other kind of offshoots. I think it's going to be a movie. She's done, you know, circuit talks about it. It's adapted into, um, it's been adopted into curriculum and Oregon schools. So I love that. And then the other one is A Handful of Earth, A Handful of Sky, The World of Octavia E. Butler. We all love Octavia Butler. Amen. And Linnell, yes. Linnell George, who is a local journalist and beautiful writer here in Los Angeles, longtime uh, journalist, and she's from here. 
she wrote this beautiful book about Octavia. It's it's not autobiography, but it's about her writing process and how she became a writer. Um, Linnell spent hours and hours, weeks, months, years um, in, in Octavia's estate going through, I mean, and, and Octavia kept everything, bus tickets, you know, journals, of course, receipts. And you see her struggles, you know, she was struggling financially uh, and she intentionally did not work in writing a, a writing profession or any super professional um, job because she didn't want, she said she didn't want to use up her writing energy. And so she did more physical work for, for, for pay. Mm. Um, and we just get to see what she, you know, just some of it was demoralizing. Uh, we get to see her, you know, her insecurities and then how she starts to give herself all of these affirmations. And she started just talking to herself like a mentor would, like a, a mother would just really emboldening herself to become Octavia Butler, the Octavia Butler that we know. So it's just beautiful to see that behind wow. the scenes. I can't mm-hmm. wait to read that. You should read. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> and where can listeners find you online, Cassandra? So my website is CassandraLane.net. Now it's time for a writing prompt. Remember, the important part is keeping your pen moving. You can always edit later. Right now, we just want to write something new and see what happens. Write about a food you loved as a child. Describe its taste, texture, smell, color, and how it felt in your mouth. Push deeper to unravel what it symbolized for you. What deep cravings does it dredge up even now? Can't you just picture Cassandra Lane in the early morning hours, surrounded with candles and incense and quiet, sitting there writing? Cassandra Lane's memoir, We Are Bridges, is out now. There's a link to buy it in the show notes, and I'll be giving away a copy this week on Instagram. I'm Sarah Gallagher, and this is Fierce Woman Writing. I'll be back next Thursday with another episode. Until then, keep writing. Become a supporting member of the podcast with a monthly contribution at FierceWomenWriting.com. Get more writing prompts and engage with other writers on our Instagram page at Fierce Women Writing. Remember, women is spelled with an X. You can also help us reach more writers by sharing this episode with a friend and subscribing, downloading, and reviewing the podcast. Thank you for listening. If I can't do it, then it can't be.